You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But if you only love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the Gentiles do that? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters in the street, what more are you doing than the tax collectors? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Before I begin this morning, I want to mark two important days, both occurring this weekend. The first is Juneteenth, which was yesterday, celebrating the emancipation of African slaves in this country. Praise the Lord. One question I think we need to be prepared to answer as modern-day Christians is, does the Bible condone slavery? Or does it rather undermine slavery, as the great Christian abolitionists would say? And I want to suggest a book to you, the book Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. She has a wonderful chapter about that in that book. The other important day we mark this morning, as uh, Pastor John has already said, is Father's Day. And I want to honor the dads this morning. Uh, could I ask you to stand if you're a father? And will you join me in praying for these men of God? That's okay. <laughs> We're praying for you guys too. All right. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for these men. Lord, we thank you that fatherhood is something that flows from who you are. Lord, that you have put this good thing in creation and ordered it in this way to uphold us, Lord, to encourage us, to correct us, to teach us, to build us up. And I pray that you would bless and build up these men this day, encourage them this day, whether their children are young or grown or whether they've even lost children. Lord, would you build them up in the love of God this day? And Father, we set aside this time to sit at your feet and learn not just what fatherly love looks like, but what love in general looks like, what you're asking of us, how you want to shape us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. This year is Father's Day. It's a special one for my family because my mom is in town. Uh, and so on a related note, uh, if you want to ask about any embarrassing stories from my childhood, now's your chance, right, mom? Okay. <laughs> and if I could just kind of beat her to the punch on one embarrassing topic, one embarrassing thing that some of you might not know about me yet is that I spent my teenage years making music in what some might call a boy band. Now, now, all right, all right, listen, hold on. In our defense, some people just thought of us as a band because we did write our own songs and we did play instruments from time to time. And we were multi-ethnic before being multi-ethnic was cool, all right? But were we a boy band? I must admit that we were a vocally driven, four-part harmony guy group singing mostly love songs and doing some occasional dance moves. And the name of our group was Sincere. 
So uh, call us what you will. Just don't put us in a box, okay? I mean, uh, maybe. Uh, don't ask my mom about that. Now, Sincere traveled around Central Florida throughout my teenage years, playing at festivals and bar mitzvahs and um, some professional venues. But perhaps one of the most meaningful gigs for me was we had a chance to play at my mom's surprise 40th birthday party. And the room was filled with good food and family and friends. But I remember one friend of the family in particular who had recently had a sort of religious conversion. And he challenged me that night. He said, Taylor, your band sounds great, but you guys sing all these love songs. He said, man, I've been married longer than you've been alive. What do you young men have to teach us about love? And it was a very blunt question. He was like that, but it was a good question. And I actually thought about it for a long while after that night. What do we really have to teach the world about love? Very little, I had to admit. He was right that most of our music was coming from an inauthentic, you might say an insincere place. And there's a kind of similar challenge, a similar word of correction that's offered in our passage today from Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Will you grab a Bible, a pew Bible, and turn with me to page 948. All of us, if we're honest, approach God and all of life with very set ideas about what love is. How we define it, what we think it is, even to the point that we judge God or we misjudge his word based on our own flawed understandings. Like presumptuous teenagers trying to sing about love to couples who've been married longer than we've been alive, we approach the Ancient of Days, the creator of heaven and earth, and ask him to conform to our humanistic understandings of what love is, rather than the other way around. And Romans 12 seeks to correct all of that, painting a portrait of love on God's terms. Verse 9 begins, let love be genuine. Or as the NIV puts it, Love must be sincere. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And this opening verse tells us two things right away. First, in insisting that love must be genuine, Scripture implies that there must be such a thing as ingenuine love, right? False love. A hypocritical kind of love, as the Greek implies. Secondly, we learn that part of what differentiates true from false love is that genuine love abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Did you notice that? As Sarah so wonderfully described it in her children's sermon. In other words, love as God defines it includes discernment. It includes making distinctions between what is objectively good for people and thus will cause them to flourish and what is objectively bad for people and will inevitably harm their souls. I think we've all seen examples of children who are loved by their parents, but with a love that lacks discernment, lacks a sense of boundaries about the kind of inputs that are going to produce good fruit in their children. 
And what's the fruit of that kind of undiscerning love? Though it's well-intentioned, it produces the bad fruit of children who are spoiled or children who are internet addicted or self-centered or worse. But biblical love is not like this, guys. Biblical love is rooted in objective truth, an objective morality, an objective standard outside of ourselves, which flows to us from the eternal nature of a just and loving God. It's not arbitrary, guys. It's not self-invented. Right and wrong flow from who God is in his very nature. Hate what is evil. The NIV translates it. Cling to what is good. Of course, biblical love never calls us to hate people. Amen? Not even our enemies. The rest of the passage makes this abundantly clear, but it calls us to hate sin because God hates it. And to recognize sin as truly destructive to people, whether they realize it or not. What a contrast to the way of the world. In the world today, we think that we get to define what love is as if we're the creators of right and wrong, right? And like spoiled children, we reject all love that's not offered on our terms. Not so for the Christian. For the Christian, we recognize that the call to love our neighbor is a call to love them on God's terms. And this is not because we're a bunch of Pharisees who prefer to be dogmatic. As Tim Keller puts it, God never gives us busy work. This isn't busy work. Instead, we stick to love as God defines it because we believe that only in him will our friends and family in this world find abundant life. That this propensity to go our own way, guys, is spiritual bankruptcy. This is not true freedom. Modern man likes to define love and truth in his own terms, in his own image. But imagine if we applied this principle to other areas of life. Imagine if we scrapped the owner's manual to our car and said, instead of filling it with gasoline, I'm going to fill it with wood dust. Instead of filling it with oil, I'm going to fill it with toothpaste. Would we expect such a car to run? No, because that car has to run in the world that actually exists, right? According to the laws of physics. And it's the same thing with love. Love flows from the eternal heart of our maker and from his user's manual, which is set forth in the word of God. And so it's God, not man, who sets the parameters for love and health and life. And what are those parameters? How does God define love? This morning, I'm preaching a shorter homily rather than a full sermon because we're going to spend some time in prayer, some extended time in prayer. But I can offer you no better place to turn than Romans 12. Maybe 1 Corinthians 13. But it rivals it. God's love, we find out here, is holy love, which is different from the world. But it's not so different that it's unrecognizable to us as creatures. So let's do a quick rundown. Starting in verse 9, the Holy Spirit says that love must be genuine, not fake. That love is discerning, rooted in what is objectively good and abhorring what is evil. Verse 10 calls us to, quote, love one another with brotherly affection. So biblical love is indeed affectionate, right? It engages our emotions. Furthermore, biblical love shows superlative honor, There should be more honor in a situation if Christians are present, not less. Amen? 
Love is fervent, verse 11. Patient in tribulation, verse 12. Biblical love meets tangible needs, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is tangible love, right? Or as Rosaria Butterfield puts it, the gospel comes with a house key. So biblical love engages our head, our heart, and our hands. It engages our head, requiring discernment, our heart, showing affection, and our hands, meeting tangible needs for the world. Amen? And if that's not challenging enough, the next paragraph goes even further. Do you have to twist the knife, Paul? It calls us to bless those who persecute us and not curse them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And for those of you who worry that this to-do list is getting too long and too challenging, I want to encourage you not to look at it that way. I mean, let it be challenging. But this is not a list of rules. Instead, it's a portrait of a kingdom heart. This is what Jesus' heart looked like. Because it was he who blessed those who persecuted him. It was he who rejoiced with those who rejoiced at the wedding of Cana. He wept with Mary at the tomb of Lazarus. He associated himself with the last, the least, the lost, the forgotten child. Love on God's terms is cross-shaped because that's what Jesus showed us. That's the revelation of God's heart shown to us on the cross of Christ. And so when we, like branches, abide in Jesus, who is the true vine, he will slowly but surely transform us from the inside out. Rules are hard, guys, but virtue is easy because virtue comes from transformation that the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts, making us more and more like Jesus. So let it challenge you. Let this portrait challenge you. But let it cause you to cry out. Let it cause you to abide in Christ. Let it cause you to press into him for the transformation necessary to show this love to the world. Verse 19 continues, beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's not biblical, guys. No matter what all the vitriol in our culture would prod us to do. But leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Because he's judge and we're not, Amen. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's just, amen. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is a verse uh, to unpack for another sermon. But the deeper meaning of it, I believe, is actually summarized in verse 21, which concludes, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. This is what love looks like. This is the user's manual, guys. This is love on God's terms, which are the only terms that really matter. It's the only terms that's going to bring life and health and healing to this broken world. When I think back to the question that the man asked me at my mom's 40th birthday party to my teenage boy band, frosted tip-haired, Adidas wearing self. What do you young men have to teach me about love? I hear the Lord asking us a similar question this morning. What do we really have to teach the world about love if it's not love on God's terms? 
if it's merely on our own terms or on their terms? Will we give up this presumptuous facade? Will we stop acting like truth makers and start being truth receivers who are instruments of his grace? Will we show them God's love, a cross-shaped love? Will we also tell them about the love that God poured out for them on the hardwood of the cross, connecting the great commandment with the great commission? Because they're bound, guys. I want to close with a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Will you please stand or kneel as I pray this and as we begin to make space for ongoing prayer in this service? It comes from the morning prayer service, the prayer for mission, in the morning prayer service of the Book of Common Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.